TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is a podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. How well Memphis and Shelby County provide justice for its children has been in the headlines recently. Five years into an oversight agreement with the Department of Justice, our juvenile court and the county have made some progress. However, despite almost no change in the area of equal protection, that's how well we provide a fair shot at justice to all children, no matter the color of their skin, Despite virtually no progress, Shelby County leadership recently asked U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions to end the DOJ's oversight. One of the many outcomes of the DOJ's oversight was the creation of a children's defense clinic at the University of Memphis Law School. Today, its director and longtime juvenile defender Lisa Geis joins us. Lisa recently moved to Memphis from New Jersey, where she was the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Models for Change Fellow at the Rutgers School of Law. So, Lisa, you've been in Memphis for just over a year now. I think. Yeah. How do you uh, how do you like it compared to New Jersey? Do we do we still sound funny to you? No, you don't sound funny anymore. It's interesting. I um, just got back from a visit home, and I found that I'm more patient now. Because <laughs> we're slow, and the traffic is a little different. Um, and I do throw out an occasional y'all. I spend a lot of time explaining the difference between barbecue and cookouts. Right, right. Um, You know, we're just as hot on the East Coast and living in D.C. It's more crowded there, white buildings. It's hotter, particularly these days. Um, And I do. The only thing I miss is going to the beach. So this this is kind of like a vacation without the beach for you. A little bit being in Memphis. Well, (laughs) but you're here for you're here for a very important reason, uh, and that is that you're running uh, the clinic at the law school for um, I guess going on the third semester. This will be our third semester. So how did you get interested in representing kids? Um, The short answer probably is fate, kismet, but um, by accident. Um, I was a non-traditional law student. I didn't start law school until my early 40s, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to be. I had a life as a theater person for 20 years, 25 years. Yes, my background, my undergrad is theater and philosophy. We're going to talk about that in a second. (laughs) Throw you a curveball. Great. So, um, and I'm the daughter of a cop. So defense was clearly not a path I would ever have thought I'd follow. And really the the quick part of it is at the end of my 1L year I needed a gig I needed a summer gig because something had fallen through with a judge and my legal writing TA who had strangely been one of my former acting students told me about a uh, research assistant position that was available in the Children's Justice Clinic and I did not know what a clinic even was so I interviewed and was hired on the spot this and is in DC this was in Jersey this was when this I was at Rutgers Rutgers Law and um, a lot of that job was comparing states, putting charts together, looking at different standards, rules from states, all the states. And those things included interrogations, detention statutes, isolation, post-dispo representation. And I saw that it was vastly different. And even just across the river from Jersey to D.C., similar from Tennessee to Arkansas, very, very different. And that really got me fired up. It different as me. compared to re- locations, not... Yes. Right. Yes. Statutes varied greatly. Some states, there was no isolation allowed. Some states let unfettered isolation. Some states would have a child in detention for 12 hours 
no more than 12 hours waiting a detention hearing. Some might be up to a week. And that really upset me. It baffled me. And I basically looked at it as a challenge. And, yeah. and that was the end of that. So. You got into it from a policy perspective at the beginning. Yes, at the very beginning, mostly because the practice law, the practice rule in New Jersey was the students can't represent clients until their third year. So. Got it. And it's so vastly different uh, sets of rules and laws. What else is different um, about ac- actually doing the representation, about actually presenting a child's case versus an adult? So – Hopefully, as defenders, um, we realize that kids aren't just short adults. Hmm. And unfortunately, you know, I don't think many of our courts realize that. And I don't um, think most of society realizes that. And I think the recent decisions from the Supreme Court, um, which focus a lot on brain development, we miss and don't recognize the other things, the other takeaways from those cases. And the court's clear. And I think... It's what makes kids different. I mean, it's simply said, Sotomayor said it, we don't need brain science to tell us kids are different. Right. And, you know, kids can't control their environment. And they there is a reasonable child standard. And we have to look at a child's individual situation, their age, their IQ, their family situation. Kids aren't capable of understanding detrimental outcomes. They're very susceptible to peer, peer pressure. And that's a lot of what we deal with on our individual cases. I mean, I had a kid here... Um, who was caught stealing phones simply because he was being made fun of for not having his own cell phone. So the quick answer was steal a phone. Right. Get a phone. Right. Um, Same thing with kids not telling lawyers and their teachers that they can't read. It's much less likely that an adult would be motivated. Right. Because their friend has a phone and they don't. Right. Right. Exactly. Good example. You know, kids not telling lawyers or teachers that they can't read, selling drugs to help mom pay bills. And thinking the worst thing that can happen is I'll get a slap on the wrist in juvenile court. And and that's you know just not the facts anymore. Yeah. Um, and so some of the Supreme Court cases you were talking about, just, just for clarification, you're talking about these lengthy sentences that the Supreme Court has said cannot stand for, for, for people who commit crimes as children. Correct. The, the Roper case, the mandatory life sentencing, the mandatory death penalties that we've done away with those, the even the Miranda um, – Understanding Miranda for a child in the JDB case, which is a juvenile in a juvenile case, so in a juvenile court. So those have just sort of had a uh, – it's followed a train of thought, if you will, that the court has taken on. Yeah. So it sounds like the clinic or at least some practical experience was your entree into – into this world. Right. Um, what What about being a clinic director and what about working with law students who are, are sort of, as, as a former one, notoriously difficult might be a, a, an easy way to describe them. But what, what is it about working with law students? What's that like? Um, sometimes it's a lot like working with my clients. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's not that much difference. Sometimes. Uh, you know, a, a lot of times I think particularly students who come right out of undergrad their only view of what's happened, what happens in a court or in the system is what they see on TV. Whether even in, in presenting a trial, they think it's what you see on, on, you know, law and order. So kind of breaking that down. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I make my students go out in the community and meet their clients at their homes, go to the schools and pick up their school records. And it's not just, you know, to make their jobs harder. It's really to get them to understand there's something going on beyond the law school, the law school walls, and the courtrooms. Um, so let's just skip to the 
to the chase maybe okay. <laughs> a few weeks ago some of uh, our uh, community leaders shelby county mayor shelby county sheriff and the shelby county juvenile court judge uh, requested from the department of justice from jeff sessions uh, specifically that uh, department of justice oversight that has been in place in this community since uh, i believe 2012 right um, be ended that we have accomplished the goal and that the doj is no longer needed uh, for oversight um it seems to me that, that that's premature. I don't think it's any Agreed. secret that that's what I think. But do you think the conversation, just our community conversation from what you know of it in your year here, has uh, has stalled out? And, and where should it go? And, and who should be leading it? And what's missing from that conversation? Um, you know, I, I think, one, I don't think the DOJ, it's time for the DOJ to leave. It scares me that we'll take steps backwards. I think that happens in all different realms. Um I mean, you know, your doctor, you're suddenly not under your doctor's care anymore. You're going to maybe stop doing the things you need to be healthy. And I look at it that, similarly to that. We, this is on all of us. When And when I say we need to fix things, I don't mean the court. It's on all of us. Um, Memphis is not different than a lot of other places. They just got caught by the DOJ. The DOJ shined its spotlight on the problems here. Um, we can't just talk the talk. Like I said, it's on all of us, defenders, prosecutors, and court. We all have to change. The responsibility is on all of us. Um, but even though we're all on board, the it's it's historically it's a historically this is an adversarial process, and I think that's one of the reasons it's stalled. We need to put our egos aside. It's not about winning in court. It's not about numbers. It's not about how many guilties, not guilties, how many motions are granted. We need to look at the reasons why we're doing things, break the cycle, get the help the kids need. And the kids want the help once they're involved in the system. And until we do that, no, we're, we need the DOJ here. Until we do that, nothing will change. Yeah, you, you've covered a, a couple of things in that answer that, that lead to my next question okay. about about not just the kids and the, and the individual cases that you and your students are, are working on, but the systems around them. And the DOJ is here because of systems and, right. and their, their failure, their actual <laughs> very bad failure right. that you mentioned is not unique, but it, it's pretty well documented at this point that, Correct. Um, uh, that, um, that we failed. So, you know, the, the DOJ has done a good job, the monitors of, of reporting on this, but tell us what you see. Tell us how that plays out. What does it look like for you to walk into juvenile court and, and see, you know, due process problems to explain that to someone who's never been over there. Okay. So for one thing is we have to stop saying the system's broken. This system works exactly how it was designed <laughs> well, to work. That is a fair point. Um, you know, it was a jumbled mess a hundred years ago, 50 years ago. And now that, that role of twine is just even worse. So we have to undo that. Um, what I see there is, again, there are, I, I really do see that the defenders, the panel defenders, the public defenders, the, pro- the juvenile prosecutors, the other court-involved stakeholders really want to embrace change. They just don't know how. Yeah. And I think the attitude – it seems to me that the attitude is checking boxes. Are we meeting these boxes and these um, topics or issues that the DOJ points out? Rather than looking at what's the underlying why, it's just putting a Band-Aid. And it's like a whack-a-mole game. It's not – like Judge Michael said, moving of the goalpost in his latest article. It's more you knock down one mole and something pops up yeah, on so the other d- side. Just for clarity, Dan Michael was quoted as saying that the federal government keeps moving the goalpost as we try to meet these uh, requirements of the of the agreement. And you're saying 
that it's it's more like whack-a-mole. It's right. more like something pops up and we go right. get it. And, right. We get it and then something pops up over in the other corner and but, we're but just chasing have that. Have they been consistent about what the, what they require of us? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I know in the latest due process monitors report, it speaks about discovery issues. Well, to me, that all comes under due process. Now, that was added in. That's not been addressed before. So maybe that's what he's talking about. But that comes under the due process issues. Um you know, on a on a less sort of philosophical level, I don't think we talk. There's a lot of talk. The talk I hear a lot of talk um, from the court saying we've got kids with trauma and the brain development and ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, but we're not actually addressing that in court. We're still treating them like short criminals and ready to hand them an orange jumpsuit. Wow. Um, so that's uh, that's a pretty frustrating. Uh, thing to hear but from the perspective of a family what and you work closely with families you, you talked about going right. to homes and, and right. working with moms and aunts and grandmothers and so what is the most frustrating thing that you think they experience or that you watch them have to experience about this um you know i think a lot of people have reached out to them and this is something i talk about with my students over many years whether it's um teachers or other court services and they're used to people coming in and saying, I'm here to help, and they don't. So that become, that starts the frustration process long before a child might be in, in delinquency matters. Um, and then you'll get, you'll get in there, and the court will order services or promise services, whether it's mentoring or drug treatment. And then the child falls through the crack, and the family falls through the crack. And will I stay on? My students follow up with their cases, and it might be three, four months, and still no one from the court has set them up. Now, we try to help where we can, and, um, you know, so the access to the court-ordered services is nil. And you can't expect that, you know, a child who's been – who's got a drug problem is going to overcome his drug problem without some sort of services. And I I just spoke with somebody – Back in New Jersey, a family friend, and they have a 15-year-old with problems at school and mon- minor contact with the police. Two parents who are very involved, upper middle class, they have insurance, they have money for co-pays, but it took more than two months to find a behavioral therapist. I can't imagine what our client, my clients go through. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I can imagine that's uh, that's really frustrating for a family, and and you've you know access to services involves uh, you know a community that is not you know, controlled by the judge or the sheriff or the mayor, or all of these players that are responsible for helping get our juvenile justice system in line. But what we've heard uh, in the, over the past few weeks, especially as we've requested that this oversight end is a lot of finger pointing uh, right. among elected officials and community members at, at, as to who's responsible for this and who needs to be working on it. And it does, that seems like a problem like we don't have anyone leading on this and and what whose responsibility is that what what should each of these parties be responsible for so realistically so ultimately um yes there is a lot of finger pointing i also see coming out of the court when there are successes and you know the doj says we've hit monitoring compliance a lot of people are willing to step front and say that was all on me and that was (laughs) i did that um you know, I think on a day-to-day basis, the judge is in that court. Um, judge Michael's there. He knows when you're looking at conditions of confinement, for instance, that there's no air conditioner last summer. There's no heat this over this Christmas break or around Christmas time. The diesel fuel just two months ago leaking back right. into the facilities. 
the school and the facility. The judge is is in that building. Right. He can go upstairs. He can see what's going on. Upstairs he, being the detention, the detention center. Yeah. Um, you know, he closes a courtroom because it's too hot, but yet it's okay for our kids to be up there. There is a lot of finger pointing at our at our police. You know, as the daughter of a police officer, I don't expect every police officer to know the Constitution. Right. And there is deference, and I, and this happens across every jurisdiction. There's often deference to the prosecutors, and there's deference to law enforcement. And I get that there is an outside force to keep our community safe. But we can iron things out in court or before we even walk into the courtroom to maybe do away with some of these cases. And just by virtue of his um, – Proximity to the problem, physical proximity. I think a lot of this falls to Judge Michael. Okay, uh, so um, what? Let's be hopeful for a minute. What's the most rewarding thing uh, that you've experienced working with these law students uh, at, I should say, my alma mater, the University of Memphis Cecil C. Humphrey School of Law? Is there, is there a story that you can share with us, a particular student or particular case? Sure. I mean, overall, I mean, I, like I said, I require my students to go out in the community, and at the end of the semester, they have to write a reflection. And almost almost every student says, "Clinic's different than I thought. I thought I could just come in here, go to court, make an argument." write a motion, maybe go to trial. And almost every student, if not every student, has said, I realize my client was more than just his charges. He was more than just a drug case. He was more than just a gun case. And it's eye-opening to the challenges that our kids face every day, and we need to fight harder. So coming from the students, I mean, in kind of a very broad and Pollyanna kind of way, that's awesome. Um, But we, last fall, we had a motion to suppress a statement that a child had made. In other words, so the court couldn't use or the the, court couldn't consider it. Correct. And um, we were in the hallway before there was a team of students and people were saying, why are you doing this? They're never going to hear your motion. You're not going to get it granted, but it's good that it's for your writing. You know, it's good for the student to learn how to write. Right. And we went in and we presented it and we were prepared and straight up the magistrate said, according to JDB, which is the Miranda case out of out of the Supreme Court, I am suppressing this motion. Wow. wow. And you would have thought we we came out into the hallway. People came out of other courtrooms saying, I don't know if there was texting going on. I don't know how people <laughs> knew. Came out of other courtrooms saying, what did you write? What wow. did you say in there? And that was really, it was great. It was a great win for the students. Um, and the law students actually write the motion absolutely. and make the argument. Absolutely. I sit behind them. On occasion, I will pop in because they are... Um, practicing under my license. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they write their motions. I mean, I, I do edit them, um, but they make all the arguments. They do all the investigations. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's fascinating. And that does does give us a little bit of hope that, that these, these kids are willing to, these kids and these law students <laughs> yes. are willing to learn and willing to, to do things that seem hopeless. Right. So, but you've been doing this for, for a little while now, working with kids in, in pretty hopeless conditions. You talked right. about trauma. We've talked about adverse childhood experiences and um, and we've talked about a system that is, as you say, working exactly as it's designed. And that is, according to the DOJ at least, not giving children their rights, not protecting them, and, and treating black ones differently. Right, so absolutely. So how do you keep hope? Like, how does Lisa guys <laughs> wake up every morning and go teach those law students that we can make a difference? What, so, what do you do? So, um, you know, I realize change can happen. And I've seen it happen. So that keeps me... Hopeful. I know it doesn't happen quickly. 
Um, for my individual clients, I've, I don't know. I've probably represented well over 200 kids, if not more. Um, I've seen kids learn how to read a chapter book at 18 years old, which doesn't seem like a big thing, but it's actually pretty huge. Um, getting great jobs, probably getting paid better than I did when I lived in D.C., going to college, and, and most importantly, not getting locked up again. And when you look at those numbers, the, the odds are against these kids. So when I don't have clients that end up locked up in adult prison, that's a big win. Systemically, I've seen changes. Um, a prime example is isolation, the use of isolation in juvenile detention. Um, Ten years ago, nobody was talking about isolation in juvenile facilities. People were embarrassed. They didn't even know it was happening. If you ask people on the street, I talked to my family about it. They're like, there's no way they put kids in an, iso- you know, in an isolation cell. And I had a really bad case, a client who was in isolation for 10 months. Wow. Or, I'm sorry, seven months. Um, when we researched it, there was no research. Nobody wanted to touch it. Um, so we broke ground and we pushed a lot of buttons, made a lot of people mad, including the, the union, the facility union. This is in, not in Memphis. This was in New Jersey. New Jersey. Um, and now, you know, it's a hot topic. There's something streaming about isolation all the time. Yeah. Um, and states across the country, including Tennessee, are changing their statutes. Yeah. Um, here, I think there's a real opportunity, obviously. You know, I'm in agreement with the DOJ on that. And I, I do think the boots on the ground – in the courtroom are trying to embrace the need for change, not just our defenders, not just our panel attorneys, but our prosecutors are well as well. They came, they come to events that we have. They want to learn more about the juvenile brain. They want to talk about what we can do for our kids. We are able, my students are able to go in and, and talk with the prosecutors, maybe because they're students, which is why it's great to have a clinic. Um, and, and tell their client's story, um, and we're getting better outcomes. We're getting more diversions. We're getting more successful outcomes. We're getting long-term, and we're getting charges dropped. But it takes time. It takes patience, and you know it takes effort. Yeah, the adversarial process is a magical thing. I mean, this is, is. A, a very broken justice system yep. for adults and for children. It's one reason we have an organization called Just City. It's one reason this right. podcast I- exists. Uh, but it is the best system, and when there is real... A pushback from both sides right. that's when it works and right. i think in this community at least we went without that for a long long right. time uh, and i think we've yet to see some of the value i mean this is you know my opinion but i think we've yet to see some of the value of introducing the kinds of advocacy that you do and that you teach right because it can do a lot right and, and hopefully the the kids coming out of the law school the clinic program are going to be our future um you know, there are future prosecutors, there are future defenders, there are future judges. Yeah. And if they take a little bit of what they learned and yeah. turn it in, it, it makes for a much better system. Yeah. So if you could change just one thing in the way we treat children in the justice system, what would it be? Um, stop taking our kids out of the communities without a plan and putting them in cages, even if it's for one day. Yeah. That changes nothing. Take that $120,000 plus thousand a year we spend on each child we lock up. Use it for something different, and you'll have better outcomes. So, Lisa, you mentioned earlier you, you grew up with a dad who's a cop, and I, I guess I missed that from your bio. But And now here you are. I mean, I'm sure you've cross-examined your fair share of police officers, which is a, a special experience. Yes, it is. So what, what is your family experience like now, and, and, and how did that 
prepare you for doing what you do? There's lots of levels Talk on that question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I so I have a very conservative family, yeah. which is always fun. And um, they do say, and, I, and where I come from in New Jersey, I come from Camden County, and Camden is often one of the most dangerous cities in the United States, according to statistics. Right. And I grew up about eight miles down the road in one of the most affluent towns in New Jersey. So um, obviously our news is covered. Our local news is all about what's happening downtown in Camden. Um, and, you know, I'm, I grew up in a house that it's not my kids. It's those kids. It's those kids in Camden. Um, and then obviously with my father as a police officer um, in my town. Let's let's review that. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot. Of um, we had a lot of house break-ins more so than anything else, but um, they do ask like, how do I do my job? How do I how, how do I sleep at night knowing I get kids <laughs> out? Um, and usually I can throw down the dollars when I'm like, oh, well, you know what you're spending on each of these kids? Oh, excellent! Yeah. You know, because I'm pretty sure you're not spending that on your kid. You know, um, but my dad actually, um, I guess maybe a year or two after I graduated from law school. And I was in my mid forties by that point. I saw he was at a family event and he said, um, you know, I'm still proud of you, even though you're oh. a defender. And, um, <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm okay with that. Cause I know I'm a really good defender. And yeah. I also believe, um, you know, there is a lot of focus on our police here across the country. I don't, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a cop. Yeah. And I do think one or two or five bad apples, you know, really, really does damage yeah. the reputation of everybody. Um, I see what the good things our police are doing and trying to get into our communities. They're put in a really tough spot. They're being made to make decisions on a spot on the spot that I hope I never, ever right. have to make. And, um, you know, so I do see that side of it. Um, my dad, I believe, was a good cop. He worked with the Police Athletic League. He, you know, coached street hockey. He did a lot of stuff to keep. We always had kids coming on weekend vacations with us. Wow! From wow. the near, you know, and you're kind of like, That's why? Amazing. You know, That's why? community policing right there. <laughs> you're like, I don't want them to come. So, um, you know. So I see that side of it, and I and I try to believe that that's really what most cops are like. And you know, I do see it here. I see the reach, the outreach. And when we are, we're cross examining, very rarely do I have a bad cop on the stand who's trying to hide something. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've actually had the experience here where I've had police officers come up to me, and I might be shooting myself in the defender foot. <laughs> When, you know, they'll say, do I really have to Mirandize the 14-year-old when I'm just trying to get information? And I'm not sure where it's going to lead. And I'm in a school, and I'm like, well, you kind of, you do, you know. <laughs> and I'd rather, you know, not, I'd rather be able to win on a suppression motion. But um, but I think it's really important. I don't expect them to know what what the Constitution actually means, but yeah. Right. Fascinating. That's a fascinating experience to bring into the courtroom. Right. Oh, it is. And it, some, it helps in the hallway when you're talking to the officer beforehand. Yeah. And he's still proud of you somehow. Somehow. <laughs> somehow. Uh, thanks so much, Lisa Geis, for joining us. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Josh. And I think the work you guys are doing is just awesome. Oh, and I yeah. thank you for being uh, a welcoming member of this, the community here thanks. for me. Thanks so much, Lisa. You bet. That was University of Memphis Children's Defense Clinic Director Lisa Geis in conversation and on the permanent record. My thanks to Professor Geis for taking some time out to chat with us. 
As usual, thanks to Gilworth and the Ohm Network for providing first-class podcast support. Quite simply, there is no better podcast network in Memphis. Check them out at voamnetwork.com. Special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for the permanent record. His duo, me and Leah, have a new record out. It's on SoundCloud and Spotify, and they play live all around town. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And most importantly, make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you will, please, please leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The proceeding is an OM production. For more information, go to theoamnetwork.com. Have an idea for a podcast? Email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your podcast.